0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Tinker Talks. I'm Mark Hybers,
1: alongside... Hi, everybody. My name's Clayton Cummins. And you, Clayton, we're first time we're hearing your voice on the podcast. It is. This is an exciting moment for me. Yes. <laughs> and
0: my career. <laughs> and your career, right. <laughs> Although, usually you're the face in front of,
1: of the camera. You know, it's important no. to broaden your horizons. Right. I a love little it. bit, you know. No. It's good for the yeah. soul, mind, body. Right. And so, for those of you
0: out there who may know the name Clayton, of course he's come to work for us, and uh, and you may have seen him on a lot of our videos during the air show. Did a lot of work uh, putting stuff together about Tinker for the air show, and and he's been running the audio for this podcast for quite a while. But thought, well, shoot, he has a face for radio and TV, so <laughs> all <of> the above. <laughs> Why not
1: use it for all? That's right.
0: <laughs> awesome. So, man, today we have a really cool
1: podcast. It we, could have been four hours if we really wanted it to be. Oh, yeah. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And just word of caution, it's not four hours. No. <laughs> but, uh, but it could have been. Uh, we got a great chance today to talk to uh, William Piazza. Hmm. And all of you out there may know him as Pete Piazza, or some of you may know the Piazza Gate uh, he has a gate named after him. And Clayton, how how good were the stories he was telling?
1: And you know, every story he told, you it just it, his face lit up. Right. He is so passionate about his past, what it was he was able to experience. And you know, talking to him, you're able you're able to feel that, and you're invested in everything that uh, uh, he has to say. He's been there, done it. He's seen it all. Uh, he's somebody that you should really, if you have the chance to go hear him speak somewhere, do it. Yes, absolutely.
0: And he uh, he was just recently nominated to the Oklahoma Military Hall of Fame. Uh, the reason he's so popular around here is because he won a Silver Star for heroism during Vietnam, the Vietnam War. So great guy. Uh, really got into a great conversation, although we had we really cut short because we could have gone real long with him. Um, and,
1: th- and it's it's people like Pete who, uh, you know, you just, just kind of emphasize all the more. It's so important to respect your elders and the, just the stories they have and what you can learn from them. At least that's kind of what I t- uh, had taken away. Uh, it just kind of shapes your perspective a little bit more on uh, things that have happened in the past, you know? Absolutely. And
0: this being the perfect podcast to uh, celebrate Veterans Day, because yes. that's why we really wanted to have him on. Uh, for this particular episode, was we wanted him to share his story, and, uh, and it's our way of saying thanks to all the veterans out there. So uh, without any further ado, Clayton, if you don't mind, we're going to go ahead and join the conversation. Let's do it. First of all, let me just say thanks, Pete, for joining us on this podcast this morning. Uh, you tell me it's the very first time you've done a podcast? Yes. Yeah. Had you ever even heard of a podcast?
2: Uh, I heard of it on Facebook. A couple of people <laughs> have talked about a, right. a uh, podcast. Good. Were you pretty
0: excited to join us?
2: Sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's was just in the morning.
0: Very modest guy. Yeah. Awesome. So what we're going to do today is is basically talk about um, your life and, and career and, and your time in active duty. Um, the one thing that we want to point out is your time in in Vietnam and uh, what earned you the Silver Star uh, and of course your most recent accomplishment you were nominated to the Oklahoma Military Hall of Fame uh, which is a huge honor okay. um, so we're going to get to that but first just to to kind of get us in to know who you are uh, it's William correct but you go yeah. by Pete Piazza okay so how did you how did you change your name from William to Pete
2: uh, when I was overseas, mostly my tours uh, either stateside or in Southeast Asia. And when you're overseas, uh, the Asians have a hard time saying piazza. Right. So it, uh, Sergeant P, as in a regular P. Right. And uh, over time, it expanded to Pete. <laughs> you know, so it hung in there and said, okay, whatever.
0: So it's not even your middle name. No, It just no. came from, from Sergeant P. Yeah. All right. I like it. So where do, where are you from? Where do you hail from? Was uh, it Georgia? Originally,
2: I was born in Niskayuna, New York, which is part of Schenectady, Okay. Uh, the Tri-City area. Right. Uh, lived there from uh, 1943 until about uh, 1953, 54, and uh, w- then we moved to uh, Brooklyn, New York, uh, my mother and I uh, lived with my grandparents there uh, for a while, and we lived on our own uh, and stayed there until February 1960 right. when I uh, decided to come into the Air Force.
0: Were you only child? Only child. Really? Okay. And so your father father wasn't around? It was just you uh, and your mom? They
2: got divorced.
0: Okay. Awesome. Now what was your mom like?
2: Uh <laughs> A hard person to live with sometimes because <laughs> she was very bossy, right. but uh, she was a nice woman. She, she took care of me. You know, we, uh, we lived in several places, New, like I said, New York, uh, Brooklyn, uh, then we lived in New Jersey for a while. Hmm. And then came back to Brooklyn, right? Know, and that's where we ended up until I came into the Air Force.
0: So was she, was she a hard person? Because you were, uh, uh, were you just a typical nineteen fifties New York kid? <laughs>
2: uh, technically, no, not really. Uh, yeah, I used to go out and hang out with uh, the kids on the street and whatnot, right. you know, and play stickball or uh, even play some softball for at the parks on the weekends. But uh, overall. Uh, I was mainly a loner, Uh, always been, because there was nobody other than the uh, other kids in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And uh, if they went inside, I went inside too. And uh, mainly my grandmother, uh, because my mother was working, my grandmother took care of me. Okay. Uh, And uh, I was actually a teacher. I taught her English, because she was from Italy, Mm -hmm. and she didn't teach me <laughs> Italian. <laughs> Everybody, what you're Italian? Why didn't I? I said no? Well, you know, it's one of those things.
0: Right. So stickball, That's funny you say that because I don't know if anybody plays stick ball anymore, but I do remember I played as a kid. Yeah.
2: Well, we used to play. You know, you play it on the street. Yeah. yeah. You have uh, the the cars or whatever as your bases. You know, and we used to play it. Uh, of course, everybody would have somebody standing around looking. Car coming, everybody stop, move, get out of the street, let the car go by, and then, right? All right, go back to the pavilion.
0: It was a very skinny bat, skinny bat, and a little ball. It was kind of uh, hard Usually, it was a, a broomstick. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs>
2: you know, you'd take get a broomstick and hit the ball.
0: Yeah, classic, awesome. So, you you go into high school. um, Were you still in? The, you said the Bronx. Was it? Where in New York did you go to high school? Uh,
2: Well, we went to several schools Okay. uh, because we uh, uh, lived—one place we lived was on Skank Avenue in uh, Flatbush, and another place we lived on Winthrop Street and then uh, several other places. And truthfully, I can't remember the names of them uh, because mainly we were living with my uh, grandmother and my uncle. Mm -hmm. And uh, as they moved, we moved, too, until my mother finally got a place— where she worked, uh, live rather uh, permanently, right. and uh, the last school I went to was uh, George Gershwin, uh, which was on uh, Leonard Boulevard near Skank Avenue. Right. Uh, one day I you know, said, I'm, "Let's, I'm going to go in the Air Force, Mom," and she said, "Okay." Took me down to. Uh, Flatbush uh, the uh, recruiter station uh-huh. and we went in there actually we were planning to go into the army but when we went down there uh, all four branches or five branches of the military guys there was only one guy in his office and that was the air force guy no kidding and I said okay I'll go air force
0: so everybody was out screwing off and, no, and the Air out, Force got you. they were all you. out
2: to lunch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it, it was a dual purpose because the guys I was running around with at the time you know, around Brooklyn, uh, one had joined the Army, one had joined the Navy, one had joined the Marines, one joined the Coast Guard. Right. only thing left open was the Air Force nobody had gone into. So I said, okay, we'll go to the Air Force. Plus it, it also gets it, uh, for me to get out of Brooklyn uh-huh. and uh, go see the Alamo in Texas. Right. Because I uh, said, well, you know, go travel. Go at, see the—
0: At the time, that was the big goal, to see the Alamo? Uh,
2: it wasn't a big goal, but <laughs> uh, when he was talking and he mentioned about the Alamo, I said, yeah, I would like to go down there, see the Alamo, you know, see something different other than the Brooklyn skyline. Right. And uh, so that's what happened.
0: What kind of high school student were you? What kind of high school student were you?
2: Uh the high school was basically, it was a brand new school, but it was probably built about four years, no, I'm sorry, three years before we went there, uh, all the kids from that particular area, because they used to, uh, the other school was two high schools, you had to take a bus and, or a train to get there. Mm-hmm. That's how far they were, and they finally built George Gershwin. Uh, it was okay.
0: Uh, were you a good student?
2: I don't know. I, I always used to get jumped on because I'd always sit by the window looking out at the sky and wondering what's on the other side of the sky. But uh
0: Well that might have been your driving passion for the Air Force.
2: It might have been. <laughs> uh, I don't know at right? the time. But uh I wasn't the only when there were several other kids that used to get jumped on. Sure. Uh the school itself was okay. Uh Funny thing about it was uh, one day the teacher came in and said, okay, we need uh, uh, school mon- hall monitors. And uh, a friend of mine said, well, I'll be a hall monitor. And he, he grabbed me and he said, come on, Pete. You, back then I was known as Bill. Right. I hadn't got the Pete yet. And he said, come on, Bill, you, you come with me. We're gonna be hall monitored. What's a hall monitor? <clears throat> no, you stand in the hallway on our stairways And you're like a road guard. You you make sure that everybody goes up one line, comes down the other stairs, so that they don't (laughs) crisscross. That started. Okay, whatever. Right. But you get out of class ten minutes early because you got to get your little vest put on and then go to your uh, location. Right. So I said, okay, whatever.
0: Good. So did you make good grades?
2: Uh, truthfully, no. Okay. <laughs> average grades. I was, I was an average kid, uh, right. I think. Anyway,
0: uh, I had nothing wrong with that. What What year was it when you when you went to the Air Force recruiter?
2: I uh, joined in February of sixty.
0: Sixty. Okay.
2: Uh, yeah, we went down the week before my birthday. Right. Uh, and which was the eighteenth of February. And uh, my mom took me down to recruiters. And a recruiter talked to me and you know gave me all the good lies that recruiters do, <laughs> and uh, said, "Okay, uh, you take this the test here and I just took a test and gave it to him." and He said, "Okay, uh, we'll contact you uh-huh. uh, once we get all of you know paperwork done." Okay, went home. Uh, it was like three or four days, and uh, we were sitting down at the dinner table on the seventeenth of February and the phone rang, and I got up, I went and answered it, and it was the recruiter. Right. He said, would you like to come in tomorrow and join? And I thought about it a minute, and I said, okay. And then I went back, sat down at the table, and they asked, my family asked me, who was that? I said, "This was the recruiter, uh, what do he want? He said he wants me to come in tomorrow, raise my hand, and I'm going to San Antonio. But it's your huh. birthday tomorrow. Yep.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you joined on your birthday?
2: I joined on my birthday. Oh,
0: well, that's awesome.
2: But official records had me joining the 19th because that's when we got to San Antonio. Right. And that was a whole different trip.
0: H- had you already finished high school? No. Okay.
2: I, ju- I bailed out of school. Okay. All right. Uh, I was one of several group of folks back then that said, eh, not for me. Right. And... Uh, Anyway, joined the Air Force. uh, Went down the next day, uh, Whitehall Street, Mm -hmm. Federal Building, raised my hand with a whole bunch of other guys. Uh, And they gave us some tests or something, medical one, and they booked us over to uh, Newark Airport. And uh, we waited there for a plane. The plane came in and uh, it was like a Old C-119 aircraft,
0: mm-hmm.
2: passenger job, civilian. They put us on, and I remember looking out the window, and you could see the moon and the clouds. I said, "Okay, nice weather." And most of us had uh, light clothing on. Mm-hmm. You know, this is February in New York City, and it's you're Pretty wearing chilly. light clothes. You know, the weather's weird. Yeah, we got uh, up in the air and landed in Pittsburgh. They had three feet of snow. It was uh, in the 20s. When the plane stopped and they turned everything off, we were, everybody grabbed the blankets and put them on <laughs> because we were so cold. They loaded up another group of people. About an, we were on the ground for about an hour, hour and a half. Then they took off. And I always remember looking out because I was sitting over the wing And the wings were going up and down all the time. Right. Oh, hell, we're going to (laughs) crash. It didn't. Uh, We got to San Antonio, and it was raining, it was cold, and everybody was freezing. We got off the plane. And the TIs were so nice to us. Get your butts over here. Stand <laughs> there in line. Come on, form up. Why not? All that good stuff like that. Right. You know, And said, oh, Lord, what did we get ourselves into? Uh, they put us on a bus. And you know, 410 wasn't complete at that time. Okay. And as they took us around from the airport to Lackland, we had to go on and off 410 to the access road, back and forth. It's because they were still building it. We got to uh, 3706 Squadron uh, mm-hmm. behind Mitchell Hall over there, where the near the BX is, and the gas station is now. Uh, TI jumped on us, get off the part, but don't form up. And they were nice. Then they took us to chow.
0: Oh, that's nice. It was,
2: old, it was yeah. like about six o'clock in the morning. All right. And we got our first chow, taste of uh, Air Force <clears throat> chow. Yeah. And everybody seemed to be pretty. <laughs> happy and uh, also because it was warm too uh and then our air force career started now the funny part about this is we had three flights okay two of the flights were air national guard uh and they got everything we were the active duty flight and we got nothing
0: like as far as gear gear equipment
2: equipment everything uh We didn't know why, and every Friday we would change TIs. Wow. Uh, And nobody would tell us why. Right. But we finally found out when we switched from 3706 over to the 3701, uh, they were uh, deactivating 3706, and uh, that's why. (laughs) But we were the last 3706 active duty, and they wanted us to, nobody wanted us. She said, okay. Uh, April, we graduated from uh, basic. Right. And they gave us basically three choices when we were in class one time and said, okay, you can either be a cook, a medic, or I'm sorry, a cop, or a photograph. Hey. Uh, there were some people in the flight that could be mechanics, uh, engineers, whatever. Uh, because they had good experience in that. Right. We were, most of us, no. Uh, we later found out, as one of our TIs told us, we were part of that McNamara's 100,000. Mm-hmm. We were considered that. right? And those people don't understand what that was. And uh, McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time, Said he wanted to bring 100,000 people into the Air Force and that they didn't have top qualifications. That was okay. Right. Bring them in anyway uh-huh. and see how far they'll go. Uh, some of the guys I were with, they were only in the Air Force about two years and got out. And they couldn't handle it. Uh, I guess I was lucky. And <laughs> I went 28 years. So <laughs> maybe I wasn't that bad off as I thought I was, right. or they thought I was. Anyway, uh, we graduated, and the, the Air Force said, okay, here's what we're going to give you, those three positions. Pick one. So I picked cop, uh, or pho- oh, I'm sorry, pho- photograph, cop, cook. Okay. And uh, the Air Force said, okay, you're going to be a cop. Two thirds of our flight became a cop automatic. Didn't matter what you put down. Right. Uh, And we found out later from a friend of mine that worked in personnel that uh, at that time the Security uh, uh, Strategic Air Command SAC SAC. Mm -hmm. wanted cops. Okay. And that's why two thirds of our squadron, no matter what your testing was, you were a cop, period.
0: They needed cops. The
2: problem was the tech school was there at Lackland. But the tech school couldn't handle us, so we went direct duty assignment, DDA. Really? Uh, and if you're basic, you go to home, go on leave, and then you go to your squadron. Mm-hmm. My squadron was the A-17th Combat Defense Squadron at Pease Air Force Base, New Hampshire. Yeah, New Hampshire, sure. Uh, Garden B-47s and KC-97 aircraft on alert. Uh, it's up to the squadron to teach you how to be a cop. Really? And it's not easy for the squadron. That puts a lot of pressure on them. But they did a damn good job. Uh, They uh, have to teach you from basic all the way up to at least the five level. Right. And they did it. We had some screw-ups, yeah. Sure. (laughs) But we learned. And uh, I spent a year and a half at P's out there on the boonies uh, guarding the the alert bombers and tankers. Uh, had several incidents uh, during that time, uh, which scared the hell out of you. Right. Uh, one was when the B-47 crashed taking off, and uh, I was, that one night I was I was on the SAT team, security alert team, mm-hmm. and we responded out there, and uh, Sarden Walker, staff Sergeant, posted me on the taxiway where the cra- plane crashed. And I'm standing there, and I turn around, and I look, and here comes the fire department. And this big red fire truck is sliding towards me <laughs> because he hit the ice on the taxiway, right? and he couldn't stop or turn, you know. so he's sliding like that. Oh, Lord, I'm going to get hit. I'm moving this way. He's coming. He missed me, but not by much. <laughs> uh, so.
0: so what caused the plane to crash, do you know? Was it just the uh, ice?
2: Well, it was a four plane flight that was taking off. Uh They were going to England. And three of the birds took off on time, but they used all the runway, literally. And they barely cleared the trees at the north end of the runway. The fourth bird, the crew chief for the bird, got sick, and they had to wait for. Uh, replacement crew chief, right? And the guy got there, and he was learning late. Naturally, coming, he came from off base, got in the plane, and as they took off, uh, from what we learned, they told ta- uh, investigation showed as the plane was taking off, the wings were bouncing like this, right? And the outrigger wheel on a 47 hit one of the uh, lights on the runway. Oh my! And when it did, it made the plane turn, and then the plane actually flipped over right. and crashed. Uh, all four people on board, the the crew, uh, died. Right. Uh, th- that night, we also had to kill a, a canine dog.
0: Oh, really? The
2: first guy that got to the p- crash was a canine handler and his dog. Back then, the dogs were. Uh, very aggressive dogs, not like today. And <laughs> more disciplined
0: uh, today. More disciplined today.
2: <laughs> uh, well, they, they, they teach them different. Right. Anyway, the uh, canine dog went up underneath the wing, and when the canine handler pulled him back out, he had the arm of one <clears throat> of the crew. Oh, my. And he was chewing on it. And uh, he tried to get the arm away, and the dog turned on him. Wow. which were, they were subject to do. Right. Because uh, one of the canine handlers one time was walking his dog, and the dog, uh, something happened, and he, he had his MA1 jacket with his uh, lighter in the zip pocket on the side. Right. And the dog's mouth literally went all the way up, and when the fangs came down, it caught the lighter. And they said that's the only thing that would have saved his arm because that dog had punctured his arm, he might have, you know, blood and whatever.
0: Right. Well, that was a tough night.
2: Those canine dogs were very aggressive.
0: Right. And you were just a young kid when all this happened.
2: Yeah. It happens, unfortunately. Uh, Then uh, in uh, August of uh, 61, I went PCS Mm -hmm. to uh, Okinawa, Japan. Right. Kadena. Uh, My first tour outside of the United States. Went there on an 18-month tour. Spent three years. Right. It was such a good tour. I said, I don't want to go back to the States. (laughs) I was having too much fun. Yeah. Uh, And they asked me when I was over there, you want to re-enlist? And I said, sure, why not? I'm getting paid. I get good food. Get a place to live. I'll re-enlist. Yeah, hey, you had a and great that, assignment. That it started. It was. It was Okinawa back then in the nineteen sixties was run by the American government. Right. It wasn't Japanese or Okinawa. Yeah. Uh, you had all the branches of the military there, Army, mm. Navy, Air Force, Marine and Coast Guard. And yes, there were fights among all five branches. Sure. But it was a good tour. <laughs> good island. Good thing. So good thing.
0: Back then we were we were not involved with Vietnam at all uh, yet, right. Believe you, it or
2: not, yeah. we were. Okay. Uh, but it wasn't to the extent that it was going to be come 64, uh, 65 on. Right. So, uh, so you had
0: no idea at this time that no. Vietnam was in your uh, the future.
2: There was a uh, support people over there, basically a uh, small contingency to train. Right. Uh, the Arvin mm-hmm. uh, Rep- Army of Vietnam. Right. Uh, South Vietnam, and uh, it wasn't that much. But interesting thing about Kadena. We had uh, several different aircraft on that base. You had SAC, you had PACAF, uh, you had RECON, you had uh, CIA, Air America. Right. And uh, several times when I was on flight, especially daytime and evening shifts, you'd have aircraft coming in uh, with uh, emergency landing. Uh, One day, a uh, RF-101 came in, landed, and we're we're sitting in the vehicle looking, and I was only an airman uh, second class at the time, two striper, and we're looking at this RF bird, and we looked at it, all three of us looked at each other and just shook our heads. And how does he get a palm tree in his wing?
0: The palm tree was in the wing of the plane? Okay.
2: Okay, RF-101 is a delta fighter with slant wings. Right. And he's got part of the palm tree wing. Uh. uh, tr- uh like the leaves and branches? Le- the branch. Yeah. Ha- in his wing. Right. So he's flying off a low.
0: He clipped one somewhere.
2: Yeah. And then one day, a, uh, what was it, a- A26, uh, which was the Air America combat Act with machine guns in the front and everything, comes in, <clears throat> and he had more than 50 bullet holes in his tail. Oh, my. So he was flying awful low someplace too. Right. Uh, they wouldn't tell us where, but putting two and two together, they were either flying low uh, uh, over Vietnam someplace, or they were flying uh, around uh, Taiwan.
0: Right. And that's still a pretty good distance between Kadena and, and Vietnam. Like, it is. It's a pretty not good trip. Far. Right. Not
2: that far. Uh, we figured it. If it was bullet holes, it was probably Taiwan, somewhere in the Straits. Right. Uh, the RF-100, it probably uh, was flying close to North Vietnam and uh, China somewhere.
0: Right. Awesome. Well, th- they they we're were going to tell you, right? Now, at this time, you were you were not married yet? No, okay. not married. Did you meet your wife while you were in no, overseas. I met no. several
2: girls, well, I was in Vietnam right. uh, in uh, Okinawa. Right. Uh, one I wanted to marry, but she didn't want to get married. So <laughs> anyway, I, come '64, I left. Uh, went back, came back to the states, mm-hmm. and was stationed at uh, Shepherd Air Force Base. Right. Uh, interesting thing about Shepherd is that uh, year and a half I was stationed here. Worked law enforcement, which was great. But uh, one day, Air Training Command, ATC, came mm. in with their IG team. And <laughs> they wanted to pull a mobility exercise. Well, back in 64, 65, mobility in ATC was not even a word anybody knew. There was no mobility. Right. But we were gonna do a mobility exercise. And question was asked, what do we do? He said, well, we'll tell you what you're going to do, and you just do it as we tell you. Right. <laughs> Which we're, because uh, we had no mobility gear, nothing. So they took uh, two 13-man teams and a two-man headquarters element, uh, 28 of us, and said, "Okay, you're going to be the mobility team. Okay. Uh, you're relieved of duty. Uh, you go up to the hospital and get your physicals. Okay." Everybody went up to the hospital, and we were in a big room. And a corpsman come in and he said, "Okay, fourteen you over here, fourteen over here. Turn around, face the walls. Uh, each way, drop your drawers, bend over, because the doctor's <laughs> going to come in and give you a shot." What do you mean a shot? Well, you're going to get a guaivacobian shot. You ever hear of it? I have not. It's basically short GG shot. You get it going to South Vietnam, or uh-huh. you get it going Southeast Asia. Yep. Okay. So everybody turn around, face the walls, drop their drawers, we all bent over and doctor came in with a carman with a tray, walks down the line, one side pops everybody with one a different needle. Right. Then goes down the other side and starts to walk out the door and she turns around and said, "Okay, you can all pull your pants up now." <laughs> and everybody's looking and it's a female doctor. Right. And we're like, oh, hell, she just popped four, uh, 28 guys. And I bet you she loved every minute of it. <laughs> and she probably did. I said, okay. Yeah. But the GG shot is like taking peanut butter, cooking it, putting it in a needle, and then sticking it in your butt. Oh, my. Because you walk around for about 15 minutes holding your butt, <laughs> limping. <laughs> okay, and it, it, it's weird. So, okay, we get back on the bus, we go down to personnel, and they out-process our pay- all 28 of us, give us our orders and everything. We go down to the uh, flight line. They put us on uh, a T-28 aircraft, twin prop job. Right. Not enough seats for everybody, so everybody's sitting in the seat, and then the rest are all sitting in the aisle. And they taxi down the run- uh, down the end of the runway, and line up, and all of a sudden, boom, we're Off up in the way. air. Right. And we're all looking at each other. Wait a minute. Uh, we got orders, and the orders say Vietnam. And we said, uh, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> Nobody told us we are going this far. Well, we flew as far probably about uh, Texas-New Mexico border before the plane turned around and came back and went, ah, sigh of <laughs> relief. Uh,
0: so you were a part of a mo- mobility exercise to Vietnam. You just didn't know— you actually weren't going. We, they didn't not, tell you that you were just an exercise. They gave us official orders. <clears throat> right.
2: So we were going from Shepherd to Travis to Vietnam. Right. So, okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, we came back, got off the plane. Then a problem came up. It said, okay, get your bags off the plane. And we all looked at each other. What bags? Oh, you didn't know. The guys that were not part of the mobility went back to the barracks because they were told— Grab all the clothes you can get, good, bad, and military, whatever. Put them in any type of bag you can find, right. and bring them here and put them on the plane. That shows that you have some kind of mobility. Yeah. Well, they went back to the barracks and just opened the lockers and started grabbing stuff, putting it in the, uh, you know, a wall bags, uh, suitcases, duffel bags, whatever. Sure. And just cramming stuff in there. So now we had to take them all back and sort all of that out, which the, the rest of the day everybody's trying to figure out where, where it goes what. <laughs> uh, anyway, about uh, a month later, first sergeant, or the orderly room calls and said, uh, you need to come up, pick your orders up. Oh, I got orders? Yeah, okay. So I went and picked my orders up, and I asked him, I says, where is Phan Rang?
1: Mm.
2: Vietnam, okay, where in Vietnam? Right and they have a map and they showed me and kind of where it's at, it wasn't posed on it, but close enough. I said, okay. So uh, come uh, December, uh, our pieces out of Shepherd went home on leave, and then in the uh, first part of January went to Hamilton Air Force Base, California, mm-hmm. for three days of M16 training, Right. Uh, supposedly. And what it was was they were, They had a bunch of us there and I said okay, you're going through a uh, AZR type training. You're gonna learn about the M16, M60, M79, uh, hand grenade slap flares. Right. Because you're going to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, So we had classroom training and we have weapons firing. Three days. All three days it rained in California. Come the third day, we were supposed to do an exercise. They took us and put us on the bus, drove us over to this village they had set up that looked like a Vietnamese village. Right. And said, okay, there is what the Vietnamese village looks like. Okay, that's a Vietnamese village, uh, what do we do now? Well, normally we would line you all up and move you through and squad firearm type tactics and show whatnot, not, but because it's been raining for three days and there's two feet of water in the village, we can't <laughs> let you go into the village. Uh, why not? Because safety said it's a hazard. Huh. Guy raised his hand and he asked, he said, we're going to Vietnam. Safety doesn't play a factor why is it because we're here in the states and safety said you can't do it so we didn't go through the village which was all right because nobody wanted to get wet anyway right uh the next day well we went back had some classroom training the next day they put us on a bus took us over to travis air force base and uh, put us on a plane and commercial job and flew us uh to hawaii then flew us to Guam, flew us to Philippines, and then we flew into Vietnam. <coughs> Hard. Long trip. Going into Vietnam was kind of an experience uh, none of us had had. Most of us were Air Force people on there, not all cops, right? Maintenance uh, personnel and medics, one of them. But uh, we're coming into Vietnam, and the pilot comes over to PA system and says, "Pull your shades down." Okay, everybody pulls shades down. Put your seatbelts on. Lean forward. Okay. Why? <laughs> Everybody, eh. uh, We're going into Tonson Oak, And we're up here like this far. Everybody's ready. All of a sudden, the plane does this.
0: So you nose down. Straight docking. down. Right.
2: Stops. The combat drop. Right. Yeah. And the reason they do that <clears throat> is because Charlie sits at the end of the runways. And as the planes come in with their AK-47s and whatnot, they shoot at them and put bullet holes in the plane and try to kill them, who's ever in the plane, or blow up the plane. So that way they do the combat drop, come in, boom, boom. Taking off, they do the same thing. Full power, straight up. So you don't give Charlie that chance to shoot at you.
0: How scary was that, nose diving?
2: For the first time, (laughs) very scary. (laughs)
0: so this is in 65
2: uh 66 66 okay yeah. uh then when so, we got to thompson they took us off and naturally once they open the door you feel all that nice warm air from vietnam comes <laughs> you know and everybody's in 1505s and all of a sudden you're got air conditioning great and all of a sudden you're, sweating, you're yeah. it's very uh, humid yeah you know, humidity just <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh they take us off the plane put us in a uh terminal there the mac terminal and uh, explained that uh okay medics here whatnot everybody splits off the different sections right. well there were 58 cops and they said you were all supposed to be going to fan rang well the problem we have is fan rang isn't built and doesn't have room for you, so we got to figure out what to do with you. So, for about a week and a half, we just hung around Tonsonute mm. in civvies. Basically, uh, they said we could go downtown. You know, Tonsonute if you want to. So I got, and I said, oh, okay. So, about four or five of us got on the bus, and we're looking at the bus and why have you got cages on the windows? And the bus driver says, well, Charlie likes to sit out there, Charlie being a Viet Cong. Right. Or NVA, North Vietnamese Army, likes to sit out there and throw hand grenades through the window. Oh, my. So they put the cages on the window so this way the grenade hits the window, it bounces off. Right. But Charlie found a way to get around that. Oh, yeah? What? Uh, they put fish hooks on the hand grenade, so when they throw the hand grenade, the fish hook will catch the, gr- the grills the and hang there instead of bouncing off. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Needed to know that big time, let me tell you. <laughs> okay. Anyway, we go down to Saigon. We get off on the corner there, and the bus driver tells us, okay, you can go anywhere in the city. But he said, if you start to see the white mice, that was the uh, the, the police in Saigon. Right. They wear a white uniform. Mm-hmm. And because they're small, they call them white mice. GIs, you know how we are. Yeah. Anyway, uh, see, as you go out from the center of the city and you see less and less white mice, if you get to a point to where there's only one or two white mice, turn around and come back in. Because the further out you get and there's less white mice, the more you're going to see the VC and the NVA. Right. Okay. So we didn't go very far out. Made sure there was at least four or five white mice on every corner. But we started walking, and uh, Frank Bickerstaff, sergeant, staff, friend of mine, he and I were stationed in Okinawa together, and... Uh, we are starting walking, and Danny Carmichael, another staff sergeant, uh, said, well, let's go this way over here, because uh, it looks like there's some bars over there. we get a beer. Okay. So we start walking that way. All of a sudden, there's a boom, explosion. And we stopped, and we looked around, and a block up, there was a big explosion. And we said, uh, do we want to go that way? No. Right. And people were running, Americans were running back this way, including the Vietnamese. And what happened? What happened? Uh, some kids took a bag and gave it to the GIs who were standing on the corner. And then the kids ran away and the bag blew up. Oh, my. We Later from the MPs, we learned that uh, they put a hand grenade in it and... GIs are very nice when kids come up to them. Right. GI, you buy, you buy. You know, and okay, yeah. Unfortunately, uh, what was in the bag was a hand grenade along with some other stuff right. that blew up. Hmm. Uh, so he said, Ah, no, we don't want this. Yeah. We went back to the bus stop. Next bus we got on, came back to Thompson, and we said, We'll stay here for the rest of the time. Right. That was our first welcome to Vietnam. So. Uh,
0: so, was this the area that you were at when the night that you guys got into the the battle where you you earned no. your? Uh,
2: okay. W- what they did, uh, they finally sent us to uh, Cameron Bay. Right. And we spent our all sixty six, nineteen sixty six, at Cameron Bay. Uh-huh. Then I came back, uh, went to uh, Clinton Sherman Air Force Base down here the road, Burns Flats. Right. Uh, I, when I went in, I handed a, uh, orders to the commander. He looked, checked them out, and I said, uh, sir, would you uh, sign the last piece of paper, please? He looked at it, looked at me, looked at it, and said, I will sign it, but you're not going anywhere. I just got there that week, right. and I had orders, uh, a request to leave. That's how bad Clinton Sherman Bay, wow. Air Force Base was. Mm-hmm. There's nothing there. Uh, he signed it. I got there in February, in uh, April I went TDY to Lackland for AZR training five days, and in May I left BCS going back to Vietnam, Right, my second tour. Mm -hmm. Got to Vietnam, uh, was at Benoit Air Base, and that's where everything changed, because Benoit used to get rocketed and mortared, and even zapper attacks too. Uh, Started out working the night shift, basically eight at night to about six or nine to about uh, eight, seven in the morning. uh, On the west side and the north side of the base, we had four sectors. Uh, When I was there, uh, Captain Marty Stones was my flight uh, commander, and uh, one night he called me in and he says, uh, I understand that you drive like a New York taxi driver, (laughs) <laughs> with the lights off and speed is all over the place I was a staff sergeant at the time right and I said well some people tell me that he says well I want you to take over uh, the mobility of the resupply teams and I said well what it was entail?" he told me and I said okay yeah I'll do it that's no problem uh, basically we had two resupply teams one east one west uh, the west took care of the north, and the east took care of the south mm-hmm. sectors also. Uh, we drove around in a nice blue government pickup truck carrying 40 mike, mic, uh, M16, M60, uh, slap flares, sea rats, coffee, anything we could carry. And basically my job was, my team's job was that we would respond to any position if they got attacked. To right. resupply them. Right. And then we would go back, load up again, and then be, mo- be mobile all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, free reign of the whole base. Uh,
0: so this is all inside the wire?
2: Inside the wire. Okay. Right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, on the uh, 30th of uh, January, uh, about 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, the sirens went off and we got called to go to CSC. Went to CSC and uh, they said the bases from the Trang North to Da Nang air bases were under attack, rockets and mortars. Uh, And that every base, all the air bases in Vietnam automatically went into red alert. So we need to get the vehicles. That was another job my team had, is we would come to work basically at 5, 5.30 in the evening Go to the motor pool, pick up vehicles and bring them to the armory and put them along the, the the armory area there, so that the evening shift, our shift when they came on, would pick up the vehicles and, for posting, right. and then in the morning they would take the vehicles back. We'd pick them up and bring them back in. Mm-hmm. So we had some pretty long hours, at least at least twelve or more. Uh, so we got, and we got the vehicles and everybody, the base, you know, doubled up our all the way around. Uh, no attack happened on the 30th, 30th of January, only up from Dun Trang North. Uh, said, okay, so we came to work the next night. Now, we were in Tet of uh, 68, which basically is the New Year's for Chinese and Vietnam right. uh, people. So there's supposed to be a yellow alert where Charlie wasn't going to attack. They said they weren't going to attack, but they, they lie anyway. Uh Come 12 o'clock midnight, 30th, uh, they called us in the CSC and said, okay, General William C. Maumeyer, the commander of 7th Air Force, got intel that all the bases were gonna be attacked tonight or this morning, Hmm. the 30th first, so we're going into red alert. Go get your stuff. So we got all our stuff. We broke the teams down into four teams, uh, one in each sector, and then we got all the vehicles and come one o'clock, no attack. Come two o'clock, no attack. Well, what happens over a period of time, you get it, you know, you're ready to go, the attack is imminent, nothing happens, you start going, oh, Lord, here we go, another fake yeah. attack, man. Well, come three o'clock, Luther Young, Airman Second Class, who was in the Ableton Tower, uh, in the bombed up it's a tall tower with uh, concrete on top. Right and he's got a button there, and the guy, I don't remember his name, in the uh, water, base water tower, up on that tower, also has the same button, which sounds the sirens, the base sirens. Mm-hmm. They spotted the rockets take, taking off, so they hit the button. That gives basically somewhere about 20, 25 seconds warning before the rockets hit, which saves lives. Right. So they sounded the siren, I was over on the uh, northwest corner of the, uh, the uh, base over by uh, the end of the runway and all of a sudden uh, here, we hear the sirens. So I stopped the vehicle, told the augmentees, I had three augmentees in the back, get out of the vehicle, take cover. And we took cover and the rockets come in, bounced all over the base and whatnot, and a couple of mortar rounds too. And during this time, And a little bit after, on the radios, uh, I hear that uh, Captain Mazie, who was our operations officer, was at at Bunker Hill 10, and he was calling for uh, Defense Six, who was the other resupply team, Mm -hmm. Sergeant Lee and uh, uh, Simmons, to respond over to Bunker Hill 10 and give them some more slap flares, because they were running out of slap flares and uh, Lee kept saying he can't because at the MP checkpoint, uh, on the map, the MP checkpoint, and like at Bunker Hill 10, the MP checkpoint here. MP checkpoint was a point where you go into the 101st Airborne Brigade area from the base. Mm -hmm. Well, what had happened was they were, Lee and uh, Simmons were just past Bunker Hill 10, went up to the MP checkpoint, to give them some coffee, the two MPs there. Uh, and he told the augmentees he had, well, you guys go ahead and eat your sea rats because uh, we're gonna be here for a little bit, take a rest, you know, no r- it around. Right. And while they were there, a squad of, uh, or a platoon, actually, size uh, VCNVA unit had come through the fence and were trying to take over the MP checkpoint. Wow. Okay. The two MPs were really lucky because they had two MPs, each had their 45s with three magazines and one M14 with two magazines. Mm-hmm. The platoon would have wiped them out in a heartbeat, but because Lee, Simmons, and the four augmentees were there, had all that firepower, they couldn't take over that MP checkpoint. Basically, they were there trying to take it over to stop the Army from coming in to help us if we they were gonna come in. right? So I said, okay, I got my augmentees, put them in the vehicle, and I drove all the way from the uh, west side all the way to the east side where the MP checkpoint on the perimeter road. Uh, got there, went up to Lee, I said, where's your flares? He got the flares, we grabbed them, and said, come on with me, I left my augmentees there for more firepower. And then Lee and I went back the way I came, down to uh, where the bomb dump was, and then we turned to the left, and came down to the new runway being built. I turned, went to left, and then went down the new runway. And a couple of canines along the runway stopped us. What's going on? I said, I don't know. Right now we've got rockets and mortars that came in, and maybe some zapper attacks, because we didn't know it was a full blown attack. We figured it was a zapper attack. Right. Come up behind the bomb, uh, behind Bunker Hill 10. Got the slap flares, and we brought them up to Captain Maisy, and he's got everybody there, uh, mainly the NCOs, talking, trying to figure out because there's no ground attack yet.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And here's a flare, sir. Okay. Uh, he's trying to figure out what's going on. All of a sudden, there's a boom. And that was the first RPG round that they uh, Charlie had fired at the bunker, and it hit the sandbags, and the M60 that was on top of it, just fell over and fell down on the road. Didn't destroy it, and I just fell there and laid there. Uh, and, you know, you gotta, as I tell the ALS class, and you got to remember, we got umpteen people there—twenty people or
0: so—and
2: right. everybody seventeen to about twenty-six years old. And only two guys had ever been in a battle, and that was from the Korean War. Right. <laughs> and nobody had been in a battle other than rockets or mortars. And all of a sudden, you hear a boom like. What is going on? Right. And then somebody yells out, look, and they're pointing up in the sky. And to me, I always say, I see this RPG round going over, lands and goes, boom. And to me, I always thought, look, oh, look, like Superman flying. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> weird, but, you know. Right. And Captain Maisy automatically said, scatter. Everybody booked out to a different location uh, to cover in their positions. Uh, basically like I said 20 people there Uh, you had three guys for the bunker Captain Mazie an army warrant officer uh, the QRF team Quick Reaction Force and two fire department folks right they were only there because of the if the elephant grass caught on fire they would call the fire rest of the fire department come put it out well those two guys jumped in their truck they booked they didn't want nothing about that area right so they, they got out of there but we all scattered, and I, as I'm going behind the bunker, here's the army warrant officer sitting there on the ground, holding an M16 with an XM148 grenade launcher. And I said, I thought he was an officer, but I late uh, several years ago, I found out he was a warrant officer. Right. I said, sir, do you you know how to use that? He looked at me and he just shook his head, no. He's a helicopter pilot. He can fly a helicopter, but he can't use an M16 and an xm 148 So I grabbed it, grabbed the ammo, and I moved over to the right. Now, you know, the French love those bunkers. I don't know why. But anyway, the bunker's there. So I'm on the right-hand side, and this is where Charlie and I start playing tit-for-tat. He'd already fired two. I, I heard the third round go and hit the bunker. So I moved over, loaded a 148 round in, and there's no, everything's Kentucky windage. Right. Uh, it, the XM 148 had two uh, fit, uh, triggers. One that comes back to where the grip of the M16 is, but it's outside, and you can pull it, but when you pull it, it goes to the right. It pulls right. Right. So you got to aim way <laughs> over here to pull low fire air. The other one is. Where the magazine goes in, mm-hmm. you've got just enough room for your thumb to go in and push the little trigger that's there, but it goes forward. Anyway, that's the one I, I used. The, the the other one, the the one by the, the handguard first, and I said, no, nope, trigger popped up there. Uh, but you don't have the uh, infrared scopes or the scopes you have now. Right. So like I said, it's Kentucky windage, and I'm <laughs> trying to figure out how far, Uh, The distance of firing is probably from, uh, say, about here to 100 meters down in either direction. Uh, And it's so dark, 30 in the morning, and you have very little light. So I'm playing, you know, hope I can hit something. Right. Uh, I fired 10 rounds. Charlie fired 13. When he fired his last round, and I waited every round hits something I hear the boom then I step out and I fire well I that 10th round I aimed it just a little higher popped it it went down and there was a big boom and just like in the movies they do you see explosion you see bodies flying in the air uh, everybody inside the bunker was yelling screaming you got them you got to be on yeah you know we're yelling back and forth and but what we didn't know is that 13th round hit by the eyelet of the bunker, and when it hit, it's like it hit, explodes, and then it goes through that because that's the weak part of the bunker. And it caught Captain Maisie standing inside the bunker, square in the back, right? And killed him instantly. Hmm. But he because there's no lights and they were all firing out of the bunker, they didn't know he was killed, so he was laying on the, the floor of the bunker. Uh, at this time, we're all you know, yelling, screaming, whatnot, and then all of a sudden, here comes the 145th Aviation Battalion, choppers, the gu- Cobra gunships and the Hueys, and they're flying, and uh, that's the first time I've been that close to a Huey or a Cobra gunship, yeah. and that Cobra gunship comes flying over my head because I had moved from the where I was up on top of the bunker because you get a better sight of what's going on. I said, uh I don't want to be here when that minigun's firing because I think, to me, he was like five feet above me firing that minigun. Right. And I, I could feel rounds flying past me. I said, uh-uh. down I go. <laughs> I went down into the bunker and I tripped over Captain Maisie, but we didn't know it was Captain Maisie. I asked, who's this on the ground? Everybody, nobody could answer. And you're inside a bunker like this. Mm-hmm. Rounds are bouncing off the wall that they're firing. And they're hot rounds, you know. They can go down your neck and burn you and whatnot, and all that noise. and so we got to get that guy out of here. So we took Maisie out and we put him on the uh, the stairs, little stairs leading out. But we never knew who it was because he was still face down. Right. Uh, then I went back in and I, I was only in there a couple of more minutes, and I said, "This is not. I'd rather stand outside because I." can see better I can hear better and know what's going on so I went back up on top and I'm on the radio you know if you've got a handheld radio ht 100 motor rollers uh, they're good for probably about a hundred yards after that they don't work but mine work for great for some reason anyway communicating CSE Central Security Control uh, what's going on out there where you know we're firing from here they're going back and forth uh, then they they called me and said uh all right we want you to fire on inside the bunk uh, inside the base there was the taxiway the aircraft and the the firing uh the arming shack and there's a dip in the ground there next to the the taxiway and they said with that's where Charlie's forming up to move on the aircraft, and we want you to fire in there with 40-mike-mike. Okay. I take the XM-148. I load it up. I aim up high like this so the round will drop down because it's only like uh, maybe 50, 75 meters out from uh, where we were at Bunker Hill 10. I pop around. Nothing happens. Why? Open it up, look at the round, and there's an indent in the round but not deep enough to set the, the charge off. Load it up, try it again, nothing happened. <sighs> so I get another XM-148 from somebody else, try it, nothing happened. Different round, same just a little indent. Mm-hmm. Get two uh, M-79 uh, grenade launchers and tried it with them, would not fire. All of a sudden there's rounds coming in from off base. So I turn around, I pop that round, and it goes off.
0: Yeah, the it other fires way. fires off base. <laughs> right.
2: I tried the other one, pop, fired off. I, what's going on? It will fire into the base, but it'll fire off the base. Interesting. Nobody's ever been able to explain to me why that did that. Even the armorers, when they looked at the weapons work. Right. Just would not fire. After the whole battle and whatnot, there were two Americans in the arming shack that got shot up, and they didn't get shot up, but the arming shack did, and they they stayed on the ground low mm-hmm. as they could during the whole time. And uh, I figure, well, maybe that's why somebody up there didn't want me <clears> firing <throat> that way. Right. I don't know. Uh, the only other guy, unfortunately, that got killed that morning uh, in the battle was uh, Airman Second Class Ed Muse, Ogwin T, mm. uh, when Captain Marty Strones was bringing his sweep team over there, that area to, to find Charlie, you know, capture or kill the Charlies, uh, they were going around the, the, rever- uh, the, the area there, um, and the first guy was a cop. He went around the corner, and he saw Charlie get up and throw a hand grenade. Uh, he shot, Charlie as he was going down and he yelled grenade. Second guy was a cop, comes around the corner, heard grenade, yells grenade, he goes down. Third guy goes around it and it's Ed Muse. And he didn't go down. He stood up, he was still standing up, hand grenade landed in front of him and killed him. Oh my. Uh, th- fourth guy came up behind him and saw that what happened. And that that was the only two. Now, that's something nobody else can explain to me. All the bullets fired that day on 31 January. Mm -hmm. Captain Maisie was killed by an RPG round. Ed Muse was killed by a hand grenade. Nobody was killed by a bullet, nor American. Right. Nobody Uh. can explain why. (laughs) But yet we killed 153 Charlies. Wow. We captured twenty-five right. on base. We wanted to go off base outside the MLR main line of resistance, mm-hmm. and see how many we killed out there. The army said no, you can't go out because there's booby traps. Right. Many years later, when uh, Captain uh, Colonel Den Maisie retired, or Maisie uh, rather, and uh, Bob Connors went back to find the mass graves that were. they were buried in, the Charlies were buried in, Uh, they talked to a colonel in the uh, Vietnamese army, and he said they lost 999 men in that battle. Oh my. At Benoit. They have 330 some, they don't know where they're at. They think they're buried in mass graves still, but they don't know where, and they're trying to find them. he also said that your intel said you're supposed to have 1,500 enemy troops attack Benoit and 2,500 attack Tonson at same time, <clears> those <throat> two bases. Uh, he says that's wrong. 5,000 enemy troops were dedicated to attack those two bases, 2,500 to each base. Wow. Uh, we had 475 cops and augmentees guarding Benoit uh, against 2,500.
0: And only lost two.
2: Odds are a little off there. Yeah. Uh, Tonsonut had 1,200, 1,300 cops and augmentees, and they had a better chance, more people than we did. Right. Uh, Charlie wanted that base, Benoit, very bad. Tonsonut only because of 7th Air Force Headquarters and MACV Headquarters being on the base, Mm -hmm. basically. Right. But they wanted Benoit. And the only reason I can think they wanted Benoit because uh, one Cal Key, who was Air Force General, that was his home base, and they wanted to upset him. Right. So, who knows? And,
0: and MacV wasn't supposed to be a thing back then, right? They were MacV was not supposed to be known about back then, right? Are uh, very little known about about MacV. Mac well,
2: MacV was there at Thompsonut. Right. You know, so they 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 controlled a lot of things that were going on. Right. Oh uh, yeah. But the basic, stories are famous now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, basically, the attack at Benoit was a three-pronged attack. From the east, the southeast, and the west. Right. Okay. Uh, The interesting thing many years later, uh, I went down to Tyler, Texas, and talked to an Army uh, guy in the 199th Light Infantry Battalion. He was out that night on a PPP site, which is a small radar unit, probably no bigger than that map over there or tall, uh, which is. (laughs) Like a regular screen, right? Uh, with a radar, little radar thing, and goes around. And I know because I worked it at Benoit. We tested it out there in the back of a, a jeep for about 30 days, and you could pick up the inf- the people out there moving around. But it's not in color; it's in like green, right. You know, dark, uh, light green thing. And uh, he told me, he said, "Yeah, we were out there uh, eight clicks to the east of Benoit." We're standing out there in our area, and a radar unit picked up this movement. And it kept going and kept going, and more and more people. And he said, We called it into Third Corps Headquarters, which was just outside of Benoit Air Base on the southeast corner down there. And uh, we told them, and it, he said, uh, They said it was probably friendlies going on for the Ted Holiday. Hmm. When actually, it was. Ch- the, uh, the VC and the NVA. And the first thing that come to my mind when I saw the movie Tora, Tora, Tora. The radar site on top of the hill picks up the Japanese coming in from the uh, northwest. And they call the command center. And that officer gets on there and tells oh, that's probably the B-17s coming in from the states. They would have been coming in from the, the northeast, not the northwest. And nobody went out to check. And that, you know, Ted, all, Ted was the same. History repeats itself, I tell, right. tell the ALS class. You know, I, I said, it, it's weird, but it does happen.
0: Well, it was a very big battle. Uh, and that's what earned you your silver star. The, uh, your...
2: Nine days later, they woke me up right. and said, get dressed in 1505s and go up to the headquarters. Okay. So I get dressed, go over there to the headquarters, and here's the colonels and whatnot, and a couple of chiefs and whatnot, and uh, Lieutenant Novak, who was a cop, uh, and he <coughs> explained to us what's going, what happened. So I'm on showing them on a map what's happening. You know, it's a grid map. And uh, he says, uh, all of a sudden somebody comes in and says, he's here. Oh, okay. We go outside and it's an open area, we're all sand, uh and they put me over here, they line up over here, the roadway's here, and the car pulls up. And four star flag flying on the pl- mm. on the flag. Right. General gets out, William C. Momayer, Seventh Air Force commander. Wow. He comes walking down that line and grass shaking everybody's hand, talking to him and whatnot. Gets up to the Colonel, shakes his hand. Then he all of a sudden he walks over to me and he st- I salute him, sir. And he said, uh you know why we're here? No sir, nobody's told me. Says, well we're gonna present you with something today. Okay, turns, looks at an officer and the officer starts reading the, re- the citation. Everybody's standing at attention. Another person comes over, hands him the star, he pins it on me, uh, you know, shakes my hand, salute. And he gives me the citation, okay, you know, not, all right, I've got to go, he shakes my <laughs> hand, it's alert. Goes back down, gets in his car. He's gone. The colonel comes over and says, "Well, he had to go uh, to, you know, we're in a war. Ain't right. no shit." Pardon me. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, you know, and he said, "Okay, that's it." Nine days after. Wow. Uh, which was kind of surprising because I'd, I'd never heard of anything given it's very nine quick. days after that yep. quick. Yeah. Especially from that. Unfortunately, uh, many years later, my ex-wife just threw threw it out. Oh, no. So I lost the original, and the one that they gave me was one I requested back in 83 when I had to request all my uh, certificates. Right. Because I was in the Philippines. She just threw everything out. Wow. So that was sad.
0: Well, that's pretty horrible. Yeah. So so fast forward many years later, um, you stationed at Tinker for a brief period of time. Three years. Right. and then uh, And you got a gate. Named
2: after you. How did that come about? Well, I was in uh, the SF headquarters one time. Right. And uh, chief back then was George Barkman. And he said, Pete, uh, we're thinking of naming a building after you. Wow. And I looked at him and I said, no. (laughs) And he says, why not? It'd be an honor. I said, no. Building streets are named after... People that are dead. Mm-hmm. I'm not dead yet. Right. I don't need to have something named after me until after I pass away. Oh, okay. So to me, it was dead. Right. But what I didn't know is they went ahead and had, uh, back then, Staff Sergeant Jonathan Porter took the project and ran with it for two years. Wow. Pushed it through everything and got it approved. So <clears throat> one day they... Uh, I, I was walking into the building and uh, they said, are you ready? And I looked at him and says, ready for what? Well, we're gonna have a, a special ceremony uh, on such and such date for you. And I said, what are y'all doing? What are y'all, y'all gonna surprise me with something, aren't you? And they said, well, what we're gonna do is we're naming a gate after you. I said, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> no, no, you're you good. So uh, yeah, they went ahead and named Gate 31 after me, right? Which was nice. But another interesting thing was back in 1991, I was going into the building one day back when it was fought. They were at 591, and uh, one of the NCOs uh, come walking up, and uh, he said, Pete, I just took my WAPs test. Okay, did you pass? He said, yeah, I even think I got your question right. And I turned around and I looked at him and I said, my question? He said, you didn't know you are in the on the WAPS test? And I said, promotion test? I said, no. He said, yeah, you're in the P- PDG. The what? Professional development guy. No, nah, no, nah. come on. He took me inside the training opened up one of the magazine the books and on such such page here was my certificate with a little paragraph about the the award right i said I, can i keep this copy yeah okay can i get four more or five more rather yeah Gave me five because I gave each one to my kids. Right. Said here, Dad's in. I was the only cop in the in the PDG. Still am, as far as I know. But (laughs) it's gone from a whole page just down to a paragraph now. Right. But one of the uh, NCOs a year ago told me when he took the test there were two questions uh, because he took it once and then he took it again and it was a different question. I said, so now I got two questions on the test. Okay. So I said, okay, fun and then. (laughs) It's
0: amazing. So now, recently, you were just just put into the Oklahoma Military Hall of Fame. What did that feel like to you? Like
2: uh, kind of surprising, right? Uh, the reason being is because many years ago, uh, roughly around probably two thousand and one, two thousand and two, I think, uh, a friend of mine uh, was. Uh, doing the uh, work uh, with the Oklahoma Military Her- Hall of Fame Heritage Foundation right. uh, on the people that have been uh, s- submitted for to be part of the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he said was, they have a board that meets and you sit down and you look through all the records and you, you grade the records, what you think should be one through five, and then they, uh, whichever one's got the highest numbers are the ones that go forward, and it, they do 12 a year. Right. So okay, so I went and did it, uh, and I f- said fine. And, you know, it, uh, wasn't my thing, mm-hmm. uh, to me anyway. And uh, one of the ladies that was there uh, said, f- uh, knew about my history and whatnot, and she says, well have you put your history? In- I said, no. She said, well, technically you can't put it in. Somebody else has to. Right. So, uh, Senior Ma- uh, Master Sergeant Mike Hodgson was in the squadron at the time, and I said, Mike, you want to submit it? And he said, yeah, I'll submit it. So, he got it, put it together, and gave it to the commander at the time. And unfortunately, I can't remember who the commander was at the time. And they submitted it. <clears throat> Never thought nothing about it until one day uh, early this year. June or uh, June, June, I think it was, uh, I got an email uh, from uh, Kelly and, uh, or I'm sorry, John Farley, and he said that uh, I've been selected for this year, for class 2023. And I said, okay. Uh, Then the ball started rolling, and uh, who we're gonna invite? Uh, Everybody, Uh, so. Basically, I just sent it out across the board uh, and uh, the wing, the mission support group, the cop squadron, uh, and a lot of the defenders, and including all my family, came. Right. Uh, we had basically about uh, 50, I think it was 54, 55 people wow. show up for to honor me anyway. Uh, all total, I think they had uh, 407 people for the whole event, for right. all 12 of the people. and. Not all the people were, were alive, a lot of them, uh, caught, few of them were dead, right. had passed away. Uh, you know, you get up on stage and they present you with a, uh, the plaque and a, 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 drawing pic, a drawing picture of it Right. You know, and uh, put the necklace on and whatnot. And it, 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 it's pretty neat.
0: It's a pretty big honor for a kid from just outside Schenectady. Yeah,
2: (laughs) you know, like I tell the ALS class, you know, uh, spent 28 years in the Air Force as a cop. Right. And got a gate named after me, uh, got a display in the uh, event center Mm -hmm. of my uniform, got a display in the ALS schoolhouse of my uniform, got into the uh, Oklahoma Military Hall of Fame uh, in seven different uh, magazines or books right. and whatnot. And you know, you, when you come in and you're figuring you're going to spend four years in the Air Force, and you end up spending over 28, and all of this expands out as you go, you know, plus you get to talk, at the, sometimes squadrons will ask me to come to their... Uh, squadron to talk to the troops, the cops, or sometimes even AWACS or other uh, units, say, "Can you come uh, to our graduation, ALS graduation, or whatever, and talk?" Yeah. So it's it's kind of interesting thing.
0: Right. Well, the story's great. You've done amazing things. Um, I think we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here, Um, but before you leave. if there's one piece of advice you'd leave for our servicemen and women now what would that be? And I know that's a challenging question right off the top of your head but
2: uh probably the best thing would be is that uh take care of your personnel your troops. Right. Uh you know airmen coming up looking for guidance from the uh, senior airmen, the NCOs, senior NCOs, and then the the officers too. But uh, one of the things that one of the uh, – I can't remember what class it was. was, uh, I think it was one of the uh, NCO uh, inductions for the master sergeant or Mm -hmm. the senior NCOs. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I told them was, you know, as as a uh, NCO – you're going to have the responsibility of taking care of the airmen, but you're also going to have the responsibility of taking care of the officers because the officers start out as a lieutenant, you know, a rudder ball, and they work their way up, and they've got to learn the two, and that senior NCO is going to be the one to teach them. And the funny part was uh, I don't remember the colonel's name, sad to say, but uh, after it was all over, you know, he come up and he says, you know, Pete, you're right. When I was a butterball, the senior NCO kept chewing my butt out for doing <laughs> stupid things. Right. I said, "Well, you know, that's the point is that you, you take care of your people and make sure that they have their equipment and that they know what the hell they're doing. Right. Because it's easy to screw up. Mm-hmm. You know, I screwed up many times when I was young and got my butt chewed out all the time, too. Right. But you learn, and you keep right on moving.
0: Awesome. Well, with that, thank you so much, Pete. Uh, we appreciate your time coming in here telling us your story. I uh, very much appreciate your sacrifice and your service. Uh, you're still carrying on like a 20-year-old, and uh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, my
2: wife told me that, too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we look forward to seeing you around for a great many years to come. Thank you so much.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Uh, thanks, you. Thanks, Pete.